Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin. Often, the word environment is associated with pristine rivers, dramatic mountains, or wild animals living in protected places. But here at Threshold, one of our guiding principles is that environment is everywhere, in our cities, in our homes, even in our own bodies. And some of the most ordinary and the most important interactions we have with this thing we call the environment is through the food we eat. Whether we're vegans, vegetarians, or omnivores, we all depend on other living things to keep ourselves alive. And we depend on the people who raise, grow, harvest, slaughter, pack, and transport that food to us. In the United States, a huge number of the people doing that work are undocumented immigrants. The Department of Agriculture estimates that over half of the people working as field hands are undocumented. Growers and labor contractors say that percentage is likely a lot higher. And that's just crop work. Undocumented people work in dairies, meatpacking plants, fisheries, trucking companies, and more. They are a crucial link in the food supply chain. But far from being appreciated, they're mostly invisible or villainized. What this means is that the security of the American food system depends on a group of people whose lives are deeply insecure. Most of the time, Americans try to ignore this fact, but the coronavirus pandemic has punctured the facade. On March 19th, as the country began to face the reality of the pandemic, the Department of Homeland Security issued a memo identifying which jobs were considered essential critical infrastructure. That list included many agricultural jobs performed mostly by undocumented workers. That means all of those people now carry two completely contradictory labels. Authorities have deemed them both illegal and essential. Journalist Alfredo Corchado wrote eloquently about this hypocrisy for the New York Times in an essay published in the opinion section in May 2020. For decades, Alfredo has been one of the nation's leading reporters covering the extremely complicated issues playing out at the U.S.-Mexico border. His work has earned him many accolades, including a Nieman Fellowship at Harvard University and the Cabot Prize from the Columbia Journalism School. And in many ways, Alfredo has been covering this border beat since he was a child, when he and his family immigrated from their small town in Mexico to central California. Starting at the age of six, Alfredo worked alongside his family in the San Joaquin Valley, which is part of one of the most productive agricultural regions in the world. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, more than 250 crops are grown in California's Central Valley, producing one quarter of the nation's food. For the New York Times piece, Alfredo Corchado explores immigration issues through the lens of his personal journey from migrant worker to award-winning journalist with the Dallas Morning News. The piece also features stunning photos by Max Whitaker, showing a new generation of laborers at work in the same fields where Alfredo and his family labored decades ago. Alfredo Corchado, thank you for joining me today on Threshold Conversations. My pleasure, Amy. Thank you for having me. So I'm so curious what you thought when you heard the news about that essential worker memo that was issued by DHS on March 19th. Reminded me what uh, my parents have always told me, that this is a fickle country, that America is a fickle country, and that there are times when they need you and they will welcome you. Uh, my father was once a guest worker, and, and he remembers coming to the United States in the 1950s, and uh, ranchers, growers, labor contractors would organize barbecues 
to welcome them, to make them feel welcome. And then they would also remind me of uh, the periods, you know, their vast mass deportations. They don't need you. They pick you up. They take you. And so when I saw that, uh, I felt this, um, I'm not, I don't want to say anger, but there was this frustration, especially, you know, if, if you've been covering the border for the last few years and you see uh, the images of, of, of a wall being built and so forth. Then, as a journalist, you know, you, you, you try to always stay on the sidelines, but I, I couldn't help feel uh, these feelings that, you know, range from your, your rage to, wow, I, I, I need to express this. I need to, you know, uh, let people know the other side of the story. And I couldn't help but think of my relatives, many of them who are still undocumented in this country. And so it was, it was a mixture of feelings. And when the opportunity came to put them down on paper, it really took just a weekend just to sit down. And it was almost uh, therapy in a sense. I was able to just to put it down, uh, crank up the music, take me back to the San Joaquin Valley and just let it roll. And you're talking about the opinion piece that you um, published in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. Right, right, exactly. Well, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece of writing and um, I think is being widely shared as it, as it should be. Just to try to understand some of the facts here, um, how is this, this memo, this designation of farm workers as essential workers being applied at the border? Can, can people who are trying to get into the country to work, can they use that memo as a way to get in? Or did it only apply to people who were already here when the pandemic hit? It only applied to people who are, who are here. I mean, you have um, thousands of um, cleaning ladies, if you will, but who are actually do much more than clean. I mean, they basically uh, become nursery care workers for a lot of people who live on the U.S. side. And it's been, uh, it's been amazing how, because the, uh, the U.S. government shut down the border to non-essential travel, uh, a, a lot of these women remain in Mexico, and you have a lot of people on the U.S. side feeling the impact of that, that they don't have that person to not only take care of their homes, but babysit their children and also take care of them. Uh, yet that this memo only uh, really looked at the people who are already here, particularly people working in the food industry. And if you, are, if you were here without papers and then this memo was issued, does that protect you from deportation if somebody, if ICE or, or DHS comes to your place of work and, and, and tries to look for people without documentation? Can you say, look, I'm an essential worker, you can't deport me? Uh, that's the interesting thing. I mean, when I talked to uh, the person I, I interviewed for the New York, New York Times, uh, Dino, uh, he sounded kind of you know, a little cocky, like I now have a paper, I can now travel. I think he travels about 50 miles from his home to to the the fields where he's uh, hoeing asparagus, and he said, you know, it makes me feel like I can now drive comfortably and not be looking for the la migra, the 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 border patrol. He says, but it's just a paper. If if they're having a bad day or or if they feel like they can deport me that day, uh, they'll they'll send me away. Uh, the another thing he said was, uh, uh, "America, Americans can change their mind tomorrow. You know, they might welcome me in today, but he doesn't feel a total sense of security. I think what for him, he, it felt it felt more like um, it peeled away the layers, it peeled away and exposed the hypocrisy in the in the United States, and that's a thing that he can't." You know, it's uh, we've been telling Americans for years, you don't want to do this, these jobs. You don't want to be out in the fields. Um, and suddenly, you know, it's it's a pandemic, and food supply is so critical. So suddenly, they're protecting them. And he says, but you know, as long as they're building that wall, it tells me that we are not welcome. 
yeah, you might be needed and, and wanted, but that's not the same thing as being welcomed and being safe. He says, you know, uh, uh, Americans are very pragmatic. They're very practical. They, they know that they need us now. Tomorrow they may change their minds. Mm. One of the people you spoke with in, in for that New York Times piece was uh, Joe Del Bosque, and, and I thought he was a really interesting person to hear from. He owns a big farm that sends organic fruit and vegetables all around the country, and you quote him as saying, sadly, it's taken a pandemic for Americans to realize that the food in their grocery stores on their tables is courtesy of mostly Mexican workers, the majority of them without documents. And I'm curious, is, is Joe an outlier or do many growers and business owners who employ undocumented immigrants want more protections for their workers and are they advocating to change the system? Increasingly, um, Joe is really one of many uh, uh, people in the, in, in the San Joaquin Valley. I mean, uh, one thing Joe said, you know, the average worker these days picking fields uh, picking crops is, is 40 years of age. Uh, so he fears that uh, uh, these people will soon hit retirement age, etc. Um, and that they, they will run out of workers. That's his main concern. And so he's, he's been lobbying uh, the delegations in California, Republicans and Democrats. Look, if you're not going to pass some comprehensive immigration reform, at least let's take a look at this. Let's make sure, because this is critical uh, for Americans. I mean, they need their food, they need their wines, uh, and Americans aren't going to stand in line, you know, looking for a job here. And I thought that was so interesting that he said, I think it was him who said in that same piece, even with the unemployment rates just skyrocketing, he has no confidence that um, that that U.S. citizens are going to come do that work it's it's hard enough that most people just don't want to do it yeah he says you know sometimes they show up uh, at five thirty in the morning and they might uh work the day but he says most of the time by noon they they just basically throw their hands up in the air and say you know can i get paid for the, the past six hours and they wow. just don't come back uh he says you know we try recruiting americans we try going around and you know i i uh, and you see this with a lot of the farmers in, in, in California, Central California. I mean, they pay not a great wage, but, you know, I think, I think wages start at thirteen fifty, and they, they go up. But they're trying to bring in more Americans because that's always been the argument from Americans is if they pay us more, maybe we, we do these jobs. Uh, he doesn't think that's going to happen. And he says, you know, if we keep paying more and more, the consumer is going to pay more at the, at the grocery store. It's something they they uh, they haven't come to grips with. So the whole system of keeping food at relatively affordable prices is is kind of on the backs of people who are working for wages that most other people wouldn't accept for that type of work anyway. Right, right, and it's I mean having worked in the fields, I mean I'm telling you, it's it's not an easy job. Uh, it's uh, you know the, the scorching sun hits you and I mean you're you're there from five thirty six a.m. till three thirty four p.m. Uh, it's a long day you have a half an hour of a, of a lunch break and that's about it wow I want to hear more about your story in just just a minute but I also wanted to touch on meat packing plants which are such a big part of this COVID-19 story um, I grew up on a on a farm myself in small outside of a small town in Iowa, and that's one of those states where there have been huge issues with COVID nineteen. Georgia, Arkansas, Colorado, Texas. Um, I'm just curious have you have you been inside a meat packing plant um, either? Well, I'm assuming not during the pandemic, but just in your life as a reporter. Yes, uh, I've been in Colorado and in Nebraska, and if you think the fields are bad. Uh, and, and, and this is interesting because uh, uh, some of my relatives who worked in the fields in California, uh, after they became legal, they left the fields to go to the uh, meat, meat plants of Colorado and some went to Nebraska. Uh, not because the conditions were better, but because the pay was better. And that's something that uh, has our, our family at this point, you know, extremely concerned because of what's happening inside these um, uh, meatpacking. So we're constantly in touch with them. 
and saying, okay, you know, is there any way you can maybe do something else for, for a while? And then, no, that's, I mean, it's, again, it's one of these essential workers. And it pays better because they wouldn't get anybody to do it if it didn't pay better. It's that rough. That's, yeah, that's basically, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I know my cousins are making significantly more than what they were making in San Joaquin Valley. Uh, but I think the risks are, are much higher. And uh, in fact, I ended up going to visit one of the plants with them, and I was just blown away by the by the conditions. What What did you see? What was it like in there? I mean, uh, <clears throat> seeing that. Uh, I'm. I mean, I'm a reporter. I, I cover drug violence, uh, so things don't scare me easily. But seeing that um, the noise, the just the, the crowding. Uh, you you couldn't really hear each other, uh, but just seeing the whole thing, I mean, it was was um, was when I say disturbing. Um, I, I mean, I walked away thinking, I I'm glad my parents never t- took us to meat meat plants. I mean, you kind of appreciate the feels a lot more. What is it? What is it like in there that is leading to? I mean, at this point, there have been so many COVID outbreaks in so many plants. Like, there's clearly something specifically about these situations that are um, that are becoming breeding grounds for the for the virus to spread, or a combination of factors. And what's your understanding of what's going on there? My understanding is, is uh, the the social distancing. You know, while they may try to social distance, I mean, it's next to impossible. And also during the the meal breaks, I mean, people are crowded in, in the same area. It's it's it you know everything that the CDC says, the guidelines. I mean, are, are basically broken once you step inside the meatpacking uh, plants or the or 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 many other factories. I mean, it's really hard to maintain these rules to follow these guidelines. And 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 meatpacking plant workers, like field workers, were deemed essential workers, right? Right. Right, same thing. Yeah. And just thinking about that, that also means if you're somebody who is afraid, you know, maybe you live with your elderly mother or something, and you're afraid to to contract the virus and potentially bring it home to her. If you're deemed an essential worker, you still have to go to work. You're not. If you don't go to work, you're going to get fired. You're in the front lines, and uh, you're gonna, you know, you're exposing the whole family, the entire family. Uh, that's a situation with the people I know in Colorado is they, they come home and they have children, they have kids. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, I can only imagine the stress that they're under, you know, at work and then coming home, uh, et cetera. And a lot of these families, I'm assuming, don't have any health insurance. Most of them don't. I mean, most of the workers I, I've talked to have no health insurance. Uh, so they're, they're basically on their own. Uh, along the border... Uh, the best kind of health care they have is, you know, to cross into Mexico and be able to get, you know, uh, whether it's prescriptions or see doctors at uh, half the price or, or even, you know, deeper discounts. Well, the fact that immigration is a divisive issue in our country is like beyond obvious. Um, but uh, it does seem that any reasonable person, no matter where they sit on the on the political spectrum right now would look at the fact that we're telling people that they're both essential and illegal at the same time and see that at the very least it just as irrational um, even if they don't want to call it hypocritical and I'm curious do you think this moment actually could provide an opening into a less ideologically driven conversation about immigration and that perhaps we could get some common sense immigration policy reform I'm not confident uh, that this is the year because it's an election year and somehow, some way, you know, uh, politicians will find a way to keep it as a divisive issue. I mean, as we as we talk, there is a wall still going up just miles away from my house, and that you know that tells you the political climate, the political times that we're living in. However, I feel that after November, this pandemic continues, outbreaks continue. I think Americans are going to have to come to terms with, you know, how do we secure a workforce so that, that we have food security? Uh, there, there, there can't be a disconnect between food security and border security. I mean, I think, I think that's, gonna, that's something that's going to 
force Congress, force the president, whoever that president is, to to deal with it and, and to think long term. I think it's it's kind of a come to Jesus moment for a lot of Americans. You know that I mean, what what exactly are we doing? What what's our message here? And how do we deal with this in a much more practical sense? Yeah, I was interested when you said earlier that um, I forget who it was you were quoting or referring to that said that you know Americans are very practical because. I, I can see that in, in one sense, but in another sense, the ideological force the, around the immigration question feels so detached from any kind of practical reality sometimes. And I think all bets are off after November. I, I, I really believe that, uh, I mean, why are we really building the wall? Who are we trying to keep out? The, you know, there's a sense that everybody crossing the border are, are, are criminals. And I think slowly people are begin, begin to realize this. At least that's that's a sense from you know border residents who who've been vilified for so many years. I mean we're we're, we're treated like piñatas on the border, and I think there's a sense that uh, maybe this is the moment when you can peel away and and understand things in a much more rational, practical, pragmatic way. We're going to take a short break and come back with more of my conversation with journalist Alfredo Corchado. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Alfredo Corchado, Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. We're talking about food security and immigration in the wake of a memo issued by the Department of Homeland Security as the coronavirus pandemic took hold in March. The memo declared that thousands of agricultural jobs were classified as essential critical infrastructure, even though many of the people who are doing those jobs are undocumented and at risk of deportation. Alfredo's family immigrated legally in the 1960s through a post-war labor agreement between Mexico and the United States called the Bracero Program. After a childhood of constant movement and work in the fields of the San Joaquin Valley, Alfredo went to college in El Paso, and later, much of his family followed him to Texas. He went on to build an illustrious career in journalism, focused on stories from the border and inside Mexico itself, including some very high-risk reporting on the drug cartels, which led to multiple death threats and other dangers. I think it's interesting the, the way you're talking about not being able to separate out food security from border security. And another layer that factors into that is environmental security, um, including in your own story, if I, if I understand it correctly, I think when you first came to the U.S. as a young boy, that was your move partly motivated by drought. Is that correct? Yes, uh, and a lot of people don't really, you know, talk about that. How droughts play? Uh, I mean, they're 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 in 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 the people's reasons as to why they they come. I mean, why we came? We had the longest drought. Uh, people still talk about uh, the drought in Durango, which lasted um, <clears throat> many years, and suddenly my my father had his own. Uh, uh, ranch land. My grandfather had his own land. I mean, he, uh, he basically had a freak accident um, and ended up losing his life uh, out, out in, the, in the land in Durango. But that, that with, uh, with the United States going to war, the drought and, and, and World War II, and then the Korean War, it basically emptied out uh, our town of San Luis de Cordero, Durango. I mean, suddenly, uh, most of the men ended up working in the United States, including all my uncles. Um, my father is the youngest of 10, and the, the majority of them ended up coming to the United States for, for a better living. Um, we see drought playing a role even today in Central America. A lot of Central American families that we talked to, I mean, we, we talked a lot, a lot about violence and gangs and so forth, but drought is always part of their of the reason for for leaving uh, their country, and it reminds me of our reasons for leaving Durango. 
Can you just give us the basic outlines of um, of what happened? Like your dad came first, and then and and kind of the story of of your move. Yeah, my father uh, came in the uh, mid fifties under this Bracero program, a guest worker program uh, that was constructed under FDR Roosevelt in nineteen forty two, and it was a way to try to bring Mexicans to the United States to help. Uh, with industries, uh, whether it's meatpacking, whether it was the fields in California. And so there were 5 million contracts were, were handed out to Mexicans during that time, between 1942 and 1964. My father um, started working in Texas, and every November he would go back to Mexico. And the idea was to go back to Mexico for two, three months. Uh, when I was a child, I remember this man coming. And to me, he was like a Santa Claus. You know, he would come during the Christmas season. He would stop by in El Paso and get some Tony Lama boots. Uh, it was a Christmas gift. Uh, maybe a little hat. And I would see him. I said, oh, that's Santa Claus, you know. I, I, I didn't call him father. I only call him uh, senor, mm. you know, sir. Um, and so my mom would say, you know, that's your father. And I couldn't understand why this man was never around. Mm. At the age of uh, a five, I, I'm, I can still hear the conversation between my grandmother and my mom, and my mom saying, we have to go north. And I remember I'm the oldest and kind of rebelling oh, with my little brother, you know, we're not going, we're not leaving, this is, this is our, our community, we love this place. Uh, but we ended up going to Ciudad Juarez first to get our green cards uh, that were promised to my dad if he continued working in the fields. And one of the mistakes he made was he sent us a postcard of, uh, of the state capital of California. And that led me to believe that our home was like the state capital. And I remember you know, being on that Greyhound bus and my, my, my brothers kept asking me, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And I looked at the helms around us and I looked at the postcard. I said, no, I think we're getting close. We ended up uh, in a trailer house surrounded by melon fields. And as a kid, I mean, uh, this man who was Santa Claus, who was El Señor, you know, suddenly he became kind of like the enemy. And I would just, I say, why did you take us from our home? You know, that's, that's just not fair. Um, but that that was the American dream, you know. That's how it started, and and my father believed and still believes in this country so much, you know, that he would always say, "We have a chance here. Uh, it's going to get better. It will get better." And that's something that always stayed with us, you know. Uh, I mean, the, the sense of this American dream, etc. But was what was interesting about that is that. We came, I mean, we were the lucky few who came across, who had our, our green cards. And suddenly the, the uh, ranchers, contractors, they needed more workers, mm. uh, especially after the immigration would do a raid and they would take half the, the field workers away. And then they come, uh, the growers will come at night or the, or the contractors and say, by the way, do you know of any more people? who may want to come. You know, the war started getting back to Durango and suddenly the community that I left behind was now living uh, in, in the San Joaquin Valley. So, you know, it's a phenomenon that continues to this day. You know, we need more workers, we need more workers. And the, the strange thing was that all of a sudden my relatives, my cousins, my friends were illegals. Uh, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand why when the vans would show up, they would all scram. I mean, they would all run, uh, hit the canals, hit the ditches, you know, try to hide from the INS. And, and they, they come and say, you know, we're looking for the mojados, you know, uh, the undocumented. And I, I, I kept thinking, you know, they're my cousins. They're my relatives. Um, and it wasn't until 1986 under President Reagan that they got their opportunity and then they became legal and 
suddenly they started leaving California for other industries, whether it was Colorado, Arizona, Oklahoma, etc. So, you know, the, the replenishing of America continued. And the impression that I have from the research I've done is that your mom is a fascinating person um, and a, just a huge force in your life. And um, I'm curious what you know about her childhood and just how she kind of helped manage everything with you and your brothers when you when you were making the transition into life in the U.S. My mother talks about her childhood in Mexico as being the pampered little girl, uh, the favorite of his father, my grandfather. Mm. And it wasn't until my grandfather died in a freak accident uh, because of that drought that my mother suddenly, I think she was 10, 11, suddenly started uh, working on her own. I mean, she would make uh, gorditas, semitas, um, these delicacies and, and sell them on the streets. And then she started working as a maid. So her life was, you know, went from uh, being the pamper little girl to being the hardworking. Uh, she had never been in the fields, uh, didn't know what the fields were. And suddenly, you know, she's she's out picking tomato, oranges, melons. Um, the 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 job that uh, I, I I still see her doing was uh, what they call the cortito, the 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 short hand hole, where you had to basically bend over for eight hours. The short hole was banned in the nineteen seventies in California, but uh, that left lasting damage. I mean, to this day, she she still has a bad back. Uh, but my mother, you know, she's. She's the most influential person in our lives. I mean, she's the one that uh, basically took us out. And when we wanted to go back to Mexico, she she was the one that would stop us and say, I want to go with you. I want to lead you back. But we're sacrificing everything we knew because we believe in what you can do in this country. Uh, I mean, I, I went from, uh, you know, the guy who was supposed to set the example for them to the guy who dropped out of high school. And, you know, in their eyes, I, I became a failure. I mean, their experiment in this country came to an end because I, I gave up on, on education. What made you fall out of love with school or maybe you never fell in love with school? Like, what, why did you decide you wanted to drop out in high school? Because I, w I would see um, that the kids who looked like me the kids who sounded like me, they weren't planning on going to Stanford or Berkeley or UCLA. I mean, more, more often than not, they were back in the fields after graduation. So I, I didn't see the point of continuing my education when I was gonna end up in the fields. Mm. And one of my wildest dreams was, you know, maybe I, I, I will marry the daughter of the of the grower, and by the time my my high school buddies graduate, I'll be the boss. You know, I'll be the metal metal. And then, uh, you know, I was I was thinking uh, I was thinking ahead. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I would tell that to my mom, I mean, she would just shake her head and said, "That's not why we brought you here." Yeah. But it was my mother, uh, in her whole wisdom. Who said to me one day, she said, you know, you have to get back to school. You have to set the example for your brothers and sisters. You have to show them that there is a way. And I said, Mom, I'm never going to go to school again. Because my dream is to own a car. <laughs> and it wasn't just any car. It was a, it was a Camaro. It was a, it was a Camaro with a T-top. And uh, she looked at me. And it was like her way, her way in. And she said, uh, you know what? Good. I'm glad you have that dream. Here's what I'm going to do. Your father and I are going to uh, raise money to get you a down payment for that car. But you have to promise three things. One, you have to leave California. Because in California, all we saw were, you know, Hispanics were out in the fields. I mean, that was it. I, I, I didn't know Hispanics could do anything else, you know, but work the fields. Uh, Two, you have to promise to go to school, get back to school. I don't care what it is, if it's high school, if it's 
community college, if it's a university, but you have to go to school. And three, you can't get married uh, until you have a diploma. And that's how I ended up uh, leaving California, moving to El Paso, and going to community college. It was very important for her because it meant setting the example for the rest. That that it that, that you know we could we could do something that our our sacrifice her sacrifice more than anything her sacrifice uh, could amount to something. Yeah, had she had the opportunity to get um, much education? Had she gone to high school or any college or? No, she um, she ended up going to third grade. Um, that's around the time when her father died. I mean, when her father died, it was all done. Mm-hmm. It was over. Uh, I think her, her grandfather would have liked her to finish high school, but that, 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 that never happened. It's amazing how much she valued that, um, maybe because she didn't have the opportunity. Um, I mean, she, she pushed you hard. You, you could have easily not gotten any education and gone on to become this world famous reporter if she hadn't made that happen it sounds like no i mean uh, uh my mother's everything and it's, it was interesting uh, when i wrote the new york times piece she said i don't want you to make it look like we're forcing you to be out in the fields because our number one goal was to get you an education our plan was for you to see how difficult it was working in the fields so that you could do something else uh. And so I went back to the New York Times. I, I said, we have to put a line there because it wasn't forced labor. <laughs> I have a fact correction from my mother. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> I'll be back with the final segment of my conversation with Alfredo Corchado right after this. Welcome back to Threshold Conversations. I'm Amy Martin, and my guest today is Alfredo Corchado, an award-winning journalist with the Dallas Morning News. When he was just six years old, Alfredo immigrated to Central California, where he went to school and worked in the fields with his family. One of the growers his family worked for was Joe Del Bosque, now one of the largest organic melon growers in the country. Del Bosque was one of the people featured in a May 2020 story Alfredo wrote for the New York Times. And Joe Del Bosque really played a big role in our family. I mean, he hired my uncles, he hired my father at one point. I mean, it's a, it's a history that goes back to the 1950s. What kind of work? I mean, six is little. I'm assuming, I, I think you were going to school, but then you would do, you'd work in the, in the weekends and on the, in the evenings maybe? Or? I, and then in the summer times, uh, it was picking tomatoes and... It was, you know, as a six-year-old kid, I mean, you're there and you're picking tomatoes. And you're not, you don't even know you're working. You're, you're just trying to fill up a bucket. But then uh, at springtime, uh, we would start hoeing uh, sugar beets, cotton, etc. And then you kind of follow the season. Um, the hardest job was, was really picking oranges. I mean, because you, you had a sack, you had to climb up a tree and then come down with the sack. I mean, there were many times when I would fall uh, from that ladder. Uh, but I mean, it was, it was all kinds of jobs, but it was basically springtime, weekends, and then the entire summer. More than anything, I mean, we were migrant workers. We were constantly moving from one town to the next. You know, one of the things that I think is, is interesting about farm work is that there just aren't that many people in the United States that are doing jobs anymore where they're interacting with, with this thing that we call the natural world. And, um, it makes me wonder if some of the the people that are considered illegal in the United States actually understand the land and the water and the animals and the weather in some parts of the United States than maybe their neighbors who are U.S. citizens who who never do manual labor out in the out in the outdoors. And do you have a sense of that? Like, do you do you have a feeling of like I know I know that part of San Joaquin Valley better than anybody else could, or as well as anybody can, and have like a special connection to those places? Yeah, I, I mean, I see, uh, for this this Times article, they sent a photographer to get pictures, and and we talked beforehand, and I kind of gave him an idea of where I lived and where the fields were, et cetera. And when I saw the photos, it just brought me back. I mean, the, uh, the yellow grain mountains that you see, I mean, it just immediately took me back. 
uh, it took me back to you know the, the Januarys, the Februarys of the year, when all you're doing is is really um, figuring out what Mother Nature's going to do that year. How much rain will we get? Because that rain would determine how much work we would have. Mm. And and there were times when it, it didn't rain. I mean, people were just sad. They were glum. They're like, oh, my God, you know, this is going to be a tough year. Uh, and as a kid, um, I was the only English speaker. So a lot of the people would come and ask me to fill out their unemployment uh, work, you know, the, 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 the documents. But you would sit there and you would hear the stories like, um, it only rained one week. Oh, it's only rained one weekend. This is going to be tough. But when it rained, you know, through February and, and early into March, it was like, this is going to be one heck of a year. And there was like a sense of excitement. Uh, people just, you know, people couldn't wait to get back to, the, to, to work. Mm. I mean, the, the mornings, I mean, you always remember the mornings, you know, the, the, the sunrise. You, you're there at 530 and you're just waiting for that first sign of light in order to hit the fields with your holes and, and the sound of the shh, 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 you know, it just, it, it, it takes you back. And, you know, many years later, people say, you know, that was the hardest work. You guys were, you know, probably living in poverty. I never thought of it as poverty. I mean, it, it was family. It was, uh, it was being out in the mother nature elements, you know. That part of was beautiful. That part of it, you know, stays with you. Um, whenever I go back to California, you know, you uh, there's a mountain called Gorman, and after you pass Gorman, all of a sudden you see the, the just this beautiful San Joaquin Valley. It just opens up, you know, the fog and everything, and it's just magical. Um, yeah, I mean, I I can't I I can't really romanticize it. Also, I mean, you know, there there was a, the scorching sun and the moments when you wish you had an hour-long break so you could rest or sometimes you didn't have enough toilets, you know, or, or by 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, the water was so hot, you know, because there wasn't enough ice. So whenever I try to remind this, I also remember the, 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 the bad parts. But Mother, I mean, we were so close to Mother Nature, and I think that's the thing that uh, uh, to this day um, you, you miss, but you, you also appreciate I, I wonder about the just the the amount of expertise and and local knowledge that comes from the workers. I mean, uh, just, I wonder how much the growers rely on the knowledge of the workers who come back year after year to help make decisions and and make keep everything growing. That is that is so incredible, you know, because uh, one of the things that uh, in in talking to Joe Del Bosque, Joe said, look, one of the things that Mexicans bring to the fields is their knowledge of mother nature is their knowledge of how the land works and how uh, you know the plants work etc i mean they can they can get to a field and immediately know if there's a plague or or where the problems are and that's something that you learn growing up in in these rural towns of mexico uh we had crews you know uh, work crews and if the crew was from michoacan Jalisco, Zacatecas, Durango, we knew they were the best. I mean, they were the hardest working people because they were used to rural work, you know, because you, you kind of have to be on the same sort of level. You know, you want to kind of be in the same momentum, same moment. Uh, so there was, there was a sense of uh, kind of giddiness when we knew, we knew the persons next to us were from Michoacan. <laughs> you know, these people know how to work. They know... Uh, the plans and so forth, uh, little things you pick up as a kid. It's it's so fascinating hearing you say that and thinking about that kind of rural pride um, that kind of resonates for me among the just like people that I know and grew up with. I, I wonder in the places where there are more rural farm workers who are uh, coming from Mexico or Central America, do you ever see that happening where like local, you know, American born ranchers and farmers can actually connect with them and find, um, you know, mutual respect or at least at least camaraderie? Definitely. I mean, I, I think a lot of small towns in rural America have been revitalized by Mexican migration and and they've been given an, an opportunity by farmers who who see them and and know that they appreciate the land as much as they do. There are small towns in Iowa 
they're small towns in Arkansas. You know, the same thing. I mean, they're being revitalized uh, by immigrants, whether they're from Mexico or Central America or other countries. But rural America is being revitalized by immigration. And a whole lot of the people that are trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border in the last several years are not from Mexico. They're from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and um, those places that have been, you know, highly impacted by climate change. Um, One example I found was that in 2019, it was the fifth straight year that extreme weather led to just huge crop losses in southern Honduras with 72% of the corn, 75% of the beans were lost. And as a whole, Central America is getting hotter and drier. How do you see these environmental issues playing out um, in combination with immigration issues in, in coming decades and, and with just the, the whole question of food security? You know, it's interesting because uh, when I started, when the uh, humanitarian crisis began uh, on the border here in the El Paso Juarez area, it was easy, you know, as, as reporters, you, you, sometimes you get into some, a, a narrative, you know, they're fleeing because of violence. And it, it becomes kind of a black and white issue. But then you really uh, begin to talk to people more in depth. And you realize that it's not black and white. And climate change is always there. Uh, I can think of one particular person who I've been following for over a year. Uh, name is Carlos, Carlos Joaquin from Guatemala. And the very first time I, I sat down with them, you know, he talked about extortion, he talked about kidnappings, etc. But then the more I talked and talked to him, the more I realized he was a small farmer who had pigs and, and who had wheat, uh, corn, and suddenly the drought just took all that away. And in talking to him, you know, he made me realize that there is no end to this, that, that this, this is just beginning for Central America. He says that issue of climate change, I mean, it's not going to end. And until they address that, until governments help out and address that issue, migration will have no end. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not enough. It's not, I think it's too simple uh, as a journalist to, to say it's because of violence that, that they're leaving. I mean, it's, it's a combination of factors. Violence, the economy, climate change, it's all tied into one. Yeah, and, and they all end up interrelating because if you don't, if you have a society or a group of people who don't have enough to eat, um, they're much more likely to be violence and other forms of social disruption. And um, it just also makes me wonder about what responsibility does the business community have in the United States that it's relying on this labor and, and by extension, all the consumers who, um, you know, are eating this food at a certain price point because of the sacrifices that so many families are making. Uh, I know we're both journalists and we're not here to set policy, but I'm, I'm also know that you know a lot about these things and have lived it. I, I mean, what's a way out of this that is more humane for everyone? Um. <laughs> All you have to do is solve immigration policy just to exactly. the easy, easy last question for you. Easy last question. I mean, you know, going back to how I got here in, in 1966 to the United States, I mean, it was right after LBJ signed the Immigration Act. Uh, you know, by, by giving people a pathway to legalization, you bring in a new network of people and you, you uh, basically guarantee food supply for another 10, 20, 30 years. And you have to continuously do that because, again, you are replenishing America. Uh, so I think Americans have, are, are going to have to rethink in, in, in a much more bold way. And also, uh, you know, they need to go back and, and, and learn their own history of, 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 you know, the last wave of immigration. I mean, it's a, a continuous replenishment of the fields, of the meatpacking, of the dairy plants. Uh, the, the service industry, et cetera. You know, I, I listened to your um, conversation that you had with David Axelrod. Um, I think it was in 2017, and I think I wrote it down here. You said, I think that the Mexicans are the boogeyman, they're the punching bags these days, but I think the day is coming soon where Americans will really miss Mexicans. And I'm just wondering, 
and this really is my last question, sorry. I'm wondering how those words, your own words, sound to you now. And do you think that maybe that day has come, thanks in part to the pandemic, that that Americans are missing Mexicans and realizing what the country owes to all these um, immigrant laborers? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's uh, that's what we see now with this pandemic is, uh, again, it's it's pulled away the curtain. And it's like the Bosque told me recently, he said, all of a sudden we start saying, you know, we don't have enough Mexicans. One of the, one of the funny things about uh, reporting up, out in the Midwest, in Iowa, in Nebraska, Minnesota, uh, when we're on, on the record, uh, how these uh, growers, ranchers, you know, meatpacking people will say, you know, we really need that wall. We really need to feel secure. We really need, you know, to keep people out, et cetera. And then you put the tape recorder away and notepad away and you order that first beer. And then they say, you know, I hope he doesn't build that wall. We can't really do it without them. And that's when I first started thinking they miss Mexicans. They're beginning to miss Mexicans uh, in these little towns. I think during the pandemic, you know, uh, it's like Dino, I mean, going back to Dino, and, and uh, Dino was debating whether he would go back to Oaxaca, but he was thinking of his son, who was born in the United States, and he wants his son to have an education, and it just took me back to my mother. She's proud of you now, I'm, I'm assuming. She's very proud of me. I am her favorite son. <laughs> uh, my, my brothers dispute that, and my mom says I will never say that publicly, but yes, you are my favorite son. <laughs> and of course, she doesn't say the same thing to them at all. No. <laughs> Well, Alfredo Corchado, it's been a complete delight to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Amy, thank you so much. A pleasure. Threshold Conversations is funded by the Park Foundation, Montana Public Radio, the High Stakes Foundation, and by the International Women's Media Foundation's Howard G. Buffett Fund for Women Journalists. And we're also funded by you, our listeners. If you want to help keep our independent, nonprofit journalism free for everyone, go to thresholdpodcast.org and click donate. The team behind Threshold Conversations includes Angela Swatek, Casey Simpson, Eva Kalea, and Nick Mott, with help from Caroline Kurtz, Dan Carreno, Hannah Carey, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, Matt Herlihy, and Rachel Klein. Special thanks to Frank Allen, who's done so much throughout his life to support journalists, including Alfredo Corchado and me. Thank you, Frank. Our music is by Travis Yost. <laughs>